Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. All right, crew, check it. Dog events are happening. For exhibitors who are able and willing to attend these events, it feels as if our tribe has been reunited once again. Meanwhile, for folks who are continuing to feel safest staying at home and away from crowds, and for folks who are driving long haul between far-flung events, I gotcha. I've been working hard to bring you all podcast episodes that help you feel connected to our larger community and offer opportunities for education and entertainment, no matter how you have managed through this truly overwhelming year. One of my favorite events this year is the monthly virtual Pure Dog Talk After Dark for patrons of our podcast. Anybody can join this fabulous community of dog enthusiasts by visiting the website and clicking on the Become a Patron link on the homepage. And while you're there zooming around on the site, you might think about checking out our shopping tab too. We've linked dog show vendors from all around the country so you can help support them during this really grueling loss of income suffered due to a lack of events. There's even a swag link that lets you order your Pure Dog Talk t-shirt, sweatshirt, fan case, mask, (laughs) ringside towel, and so much more. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you every day to make sense out of everyday things to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box, to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. So check out the links at www.puredogtalk.com. Your support adds up to a huge voice for purebred dogs. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and one of our favorite returning guests is back again, Dale Martinson from Touche Japanese Chin. And Dale and I are going to talk about the stud dogs being in the house. And Dale and I had talked about this and the idea that many of us have a hard time actually keeping stud dogs on our property for whatever reason, all kinds of reasons. So let's talk about it and sort of the crisis in stud dogs right now. Well, hey, Laura, how are you? I'm awesome. How you doing, Dale? Oh, it's great. Good to be back. How's Texas? Is it cold there yet? Oh, man, is it cold? It is cold. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's bad. It's bad. So this is a topic we've been like really kicking around a lot lately. Yep. Because so many different reasons that we're running into these problems with us keeping stud dogs. 
Well, and it, I think, adds to popular sire problems. And I mean, just so many issues kind of devolve from this one. And so let's take it down to the basics and say, all right, I've got a litter of puppies. I need to keep a bitch to carry on the line. But here's this really pretty dog. What do I do with it? Well, you know, I mean, ultimately, as breeders, whatever race we're running, we're wanting these dogs to have purpose and health and all of these things. And it's all comes down to our inbreeding coefficiency. Yep. How much genetic diversity do we have going on? And how much genetic diversity can we keep at our home? Yep. So you really need to sit down and figure out for however many intact bitches you keep, typically can maintain. Now, we've always kind of had the luxury of being like the ark where we can keep as many males as we do females and people right. marvel at that. It is something that we've had to do because our breeds had such a low threshold of inbreeding coefficiency. Mm-hmm. So most breeders that have two or three bitches they keep a male puppy, he's too closely related to the mother, the sister, and the aunt that they already have. Exactly. So really what needs to happen is people need to go ahead and get a circle of friends together where they can turn around and keep stud dogs in kind of a joint ownership that they can share. Right. Because very quickly, after you've used your dog once or twice, you may not need that dog yet. Your other option is you can go ahead and collect that dog, freeze it, and put it on ice, right. and then go ahead and neuter it in place or do whatever you wish with it so you can go ahead and reuse that later on when your pedigrees are open enough to take it. Right, when you've gone down the road a couple generations. Well, and I really like, and you and I have talked about this too, I don't particularly personally call them foster homes or what do they call them, guardian homes or anything like that, but I do have that circle of trust. I'm going to park this dog with you. I'm not charging you for it. This dog's just going to go live with you. It's kind of my dog, but it's totally your dog. And I just need to borrow its boy parts every now and then, right? Well, and that's really, if you can find those people, I mean, and they're not just on every corner, but find those people that can deal with having that intact dog. Because a lot of our breeds, like Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, you know, our breed was almost eradicated in World War II, where they were down to seven dogs in England. Mm-hmm. And so our inbreeding coefficient, we just really have to try to keep as much diversity as possible for health. Yep. Having those dogs available. But the other thing, when you go to just use a stud dog and you haven't bred from it, you really don't know what you're going to get from that dog until you've had a couple of outcross litters, a couple of line bred litters, and you've watched the puppies grow up out of them. And you won't know your long run health testing. So, you know, a lot of these dogs need to sit back four or five years before they're really going to need to be used. Mm -hmm. It's a long run thing. People kind of say, well, I'm going to go to the show, whatever wins. I'm going to talk to them about breeding to that. Right. And then they find themselves in that position. Exactly. Then we start to go down the popular sire route. And this is a conversation I was talking to Amanda Kelly. We're talking on stud dog shopping. So the problem is if you're only thinking this one litter, that's fine. That's one thing. I'm going to breed to this last best in show winner because everybody wants his puppies and I'll have a market and, you know, he's a best in show winner. So he must be fabulous. 
takes very little consideration of what is your bitch? What is the bitch's pedigree? What is your dog that you're looking at? What's his pedigree? Are they going to have a good match? Is there going to be a Nick? Is this going to be something that's useful? Well, and there you go. I mean, we take such comfort in what we don't know. Mm-hmm. Not knowing is just, it's like the blind faith in the universe that we're not going to worry about this. And it's all going to be fine. Right. One of my really dear friends, she bred uh, Cavalier with a forward face marking, mm. which nah, not so desirable. But I mean, really nice all around other bit. She bred to a fabulous little dog and she just had her litter. And she's like, they all have forward face markings every day. I'm one of them. Mm. And I said, well, you know, the stud dog's mother had one too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, those litters where we went and said, this was the whole litter. This was a uniform strengths and uniform problems that we faced in the whole breeding. That's priceless information. Yeah, it is absolutely imperative. But you go and you import something from another country with 12 syllables. You don't really know much of anything behind that. It's absolute. It's a pretty radical outcross. Yep. And you just don't know. I just did that. I had one of my stud dogs used on a bitch that was imported from Russia. And her pedigree is wide open already. And then you couldn't find a same ancestor between these two dogs if you went back to the founding of the breed. I mean, it's <laughs> total outcross. And as luck would have it, it was a pretty good nick. And it'll give me some nice diversity in young males to work with going forward. But that's that crapshoot. <laughs> well, absolutely. Was your bitch already a line bred bitch? My stud dog that was bred to this bitch from Russia is somewhat line bred. Yes, he is somewhat line bred. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's not like hellacious inbred or anything, but the consistency came through. Right. I mean, there's some variety that you would expect from that level of outcross, but the consistency of quality and overall style definitely did come through. Yes, yeah. And there is a time and a place for all that. But really, those good male puppies, if they can be placed where you can get access back to them, there is the information and knowledge that you have with those dogs. And getting to look at the long-run health testing, the long-run right. temperaments and all of these things, boy, that's really something you can use that otherwise would not be available to you. And that's exactly what I did. I had four boy puppies, and they're all parked <laughs> in various places around and about. Absolutely a wise choice. And when you do go to use somebody's stud dog, this is where I would say probably 30% of all of the really good fights we have get going on is breeding to somebody else's stud dog. And those things are really need to be kind of ironed out in advance. So where you kind of know, are you taking a puppy back? If you're taking a puppy back, who gets to name the puppy? You know, <laughs> what age is the puppy going to be picked up at? Yep. Is it just a flat out, we're going to take it eight weeks, 10 weeks? What's the deal on that? And there's only one puppy. All of those things you really need to discuss before. Absolutely. Because the price of a stud fee is, of course, usually significantly less than even the price of a puppy. But you're going to turn around and you're gambling and you're going to wait five months mm -hmm. before you realize anything from that. So you're, right. you're waiting on that where it's not the instant compensation. Exactly. And I think in the pantheon of ways we can access the necessary 
male dogs for our breeding programs. You can keep them in-house, which is, as we've discussed, hard to do. You can buy one as either a young dog or a baby puppy, or I like to get older dogs that I talk about buying an older bitch, but buying an older stud dog is, I think, even more interesting because you've had a chance to see it develop. It's done what it's going to do. The health clearances are there. And maybe it's a duplicate of what that breeder has in their kennel and they're willing to let you bring it to your kennel and add it into That's your That's a fantastic kennel. option. You know, it really truly is. Yeah. I mean, you can do that. But I think the one thing that as somebody that's inquiring, asking for that ask, know exactly what you're asking for. Right. That may be a dog that somebody has invested thousands, maybe tens of thousands of dollars in. Mm-hmm. and so. You might do a litter out of it. It might not be good, you know, right, right. but don't go out there and throw shade. Yes. Be a good house guest. Yes. That's a good one. Not everything is the stud dog's fault. As I like to remind everyone, it takes two to tango. <laughs> well, absolutely. And because so many breeders will not offer stud service. And honestly, we have a very small kind of closed circle of people that we work with that we all get along pretty well with. And it's not an easy circle to get into right? because it's got to be a drama-free zone. Yes. And if we use one of our friends' dogs and it doesn't work out, well, we place them as pets and we move on. Right. We don't go to social media and say, oh, my God, blah, 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 blah. Right. Here's Harry's puppy and uh, we're doing a GoFundMe to have a brain transplant on. <laughs> my God. Right. That makes people break out in hives and when you want to use their dog again. And never makes it available to anyone else. Ever again. (laughs) Ever again. Yes. Trust me. Yeah. So there's that piece, the buy it. So then that is an option. The one time, the one-off breeding. And then there's the potential of leasing a dog. And I think about these, the buy it and the lease it both in terms of some of my early, early mentors who were very, very old school dog people. And basically... Both Sue Fagan and Mildred Ravel, early mentors of mine, Mildred and Wirehair's Sue in Ibethan Hounds, would have half a dozen bitches and one stud dog. And she just bred the same stud dog to all the bitches. That was it. We were done. Right. And she'd do that for a couple generations and she'd find one of those and add that into the mix and the other one would retire. And that to me is always been very interesting. And it certainly made for consistency in those lines. I will say that. Well, that's very true. And when you are working within a certain pool like that, as far as like, we're going to use this stud dog and breed everything to, you really have a strong feeling for what that dog is bringing. Right. Because you use a dog once or even twice and you really don't know. It's not until you've had five, six liters from them, and you can look at a preponderance, you know, especially breeds where may not be big numbers. Right. We did a repeat breeding the other day for a friend, and the first litter, meh, and she wanted to repeat it, and I was like going, well, if you want to, you know, I mean, okay, you know, and she repeated it, and oh, much nicer this time. Interesting. You know, so you're rolling the dice, and you do need to try several different ways and to kind of see how it goes, you know, and watch them grow. Yeah. Good or bad. Right. Growing dogs out. And that, to me, falls under the stud dog category as well, because you've got to grow those stud dogs up. You can't decide at an eight-week-old puppy what's going to grow up and make its mark on the breed. 
there is no way any more than you can decide which one's going to be the next best in show winner. That's totally the truth. And that to me is having a place and it doesn't have to be every single puppy in the litter. I mean, it's just having the ability to work with your new homes, whether it's a new person who wants to get involved in your breed, whether it's a longtime puppy buyer who's had half a dozen of your dogs, whatever it is, that those relationships that you can build from that are invaluable, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely priceless. Absolutely priceless. Because we've talked about this before, a certain percentage of your stock you need to hold back, whatever your number is, mm-hmm. you need to hold back every year. Because, of course, your bitches are going to age out. But your stud dogs are the equivalent of Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau. And <laughs> you keep those crusty little buggers. It's a till death do you part type of thing where you can get a long run feel on that. And whether you trade them around with your friends and kind of keep them in circulation, those are all possibilities right? when you have that. Absolutely. And you can kind of share because you're going to probably like how many times you actually use one of your own dogs. We have a three-time best in show dog. And I think we have just now, and he's probably five. I think he's had maybe three litters, maybe. And when you have other people using them, you can sit back there and go watch those puppies. You get so much insight as to what you're getting from them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's been very interesting. That same stud dog I was telling you that I bred to that outcross to that Russian bitch. I did a literally half brother, half sister. And now I don't feel the need to use him again for, I don't know, maybe ever, but at least for a while, because I want to watch those outcross and those inbred puppies grow up and see what they look like and see what they do and see how they produce before I decide how he's going to be most useful again. And you know, where some of those dogs are maybe harder to keep, that's where maybe sometimes banking them is a plus, especially when you have dogs that maybe don't have as long a shelf life of production. Right. Having that opportunity. I mean, it's not inexpensive, but really when you think about how much you invest in keeping a dog for a decade to be able to have that and pull that back, that's kind of awesome. 80 bucks a year doesn't really break me, I'm saying. (laughs) Right, right. That's not very many entries nowadays, you know? Right. So to to be able to turn the hands of time back. Mm -hmm. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Embark is a proud sponsor of Pure Dog Talk. DNA testing is rapidly growing amongst breeders. And given the importance of these test results to the health of not only each dog, but also that of future generations of dogs. At Embark, they believe it's critical to provide transparency in their testing methods that result in more than 99.99% accuracy for health tests. Embark's innovative testing platform enables the hundreds of genetic health and traits test results provided in Embark's products, while also creating research-ready data for use by canine health organizations and scientists. Embark's methods exceed industry quality control standards by also checking the breed, sex, and relatives of every sample to ensure DNA samples are correctly labeled and unique identity is recorded. In addition to quality control, this helps fraud prevention by ensuring the same dog can't be tested multiple times without Embark knowing. At Embark, they're proud of their world-class canine DNA testing service, 
and they're committed to continually raising the bar. They're on a mission to provide breeders and all dog owners with the high level of accuracy they need to optimize their breeding programs, manage the lifetime care of their dogs, and improve the health of future generations of dogs. Haven't used Embark yet? Get your first Embark for Breeders dog DNA test for $99 right now. You use the code TRYEMBARK99 at EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders. That's TRYEMBARK99 at EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders. That's a good segue into one of the other topics I wanted to bounce around with you. And that is this concept of the prepotent stud dog. And it's discussed from time to time, but I'm not entirely sure how much people grasp the concept of a dog who is able to stamp a style, a mind, a performance ability, whatever it is that you're looking for from that dog that can produce it in a wide variety of bitches. So I just really wanted to kind of delve into that a little bit. Well, you know, most of your truly prepotent stud dogs are your line-bred dogs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a rare animal that is an outcross that will be prepotent. But, Correct. you know, when you get the ones like three Japanese chin markings are so, they're everything. Everything, You, know, you can yeah. have the best puppies mm-hmm. in the whole world, and if they're not perfectly marked, sorry. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when you go ahead and you can get a prepotent sire that will give strong markings on every single puppy. Those are pretty invaluable. And even down to the point, like if it's a dog or a bitch producer, all of those things kind of come into play. But, you know, the prepotent stud dog isn't very often an accident. No. It's not an accident, but it will be a dog that will stamp a few very consistent traits on all of its puppies. And I know we had a cocker that way, you know, back in the 90s. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that the thing that you talked about there, they're never going to be like you have a great dog, but it's the result of an outcross. That dog is probably what we think of or what we call a fluke. It's an accident and it won't be able mm-hmm. to reproduce itself. And I had one of those. I had a really big top winning wire hair pointer that was the result of a double outcross. And he was an amazing dog. He won everything, field trial, dog show, you name it. First best in show dual champion. But that dog never really reproduced himself, and it was because of what his pedigree was. Well, and that's very true. And, like, we bought an outcross dog one time, and he was a magnificent animal. The only dog I've ever had that went all breed best in show from the open class. Oh, my. Yeah, pretty neat. But he produced almost 90-plus percent bad bites. Oh, Jesus. And come to find out later from somebody that he was the only puppy of a pretty good-sized litter that had a good bite. Imagine that. So, mm-hmm. imagine that. But there you have it. You know, I mean, right. it all kind of sorts out in the wash. And when you have a dog that you're going to offer it stud, part of it is your people are, those are going to be your guinea pigs. Let, let other people, you can go walk back and look and see what you have, you know. Because right. if you have a controlled audience as to what you're breeding your dogs to, you're going to not really ever see what that dog is going to sire right. when it goes just something that very, very different. Right. And I think, again, this goes back to our concept of line breeding, outcrossing, all the rest of it, the mama's boy concept, right? Like I believe and everything I've ever heard from Pat Trotter on down the road, your most 
prepotent sires, your most successful stud dogs, are the dogs who come from very strong bitch lines. Absolutely a fact. Absolutely a fact. And they're those bitches that, you know, they didn't give you much, but what they gave you was such type. And those are those bitches as I go, oh my gosh, if I could get a son of hers, you know. Mm -hmm. And one of the famous cocker sires that sired well over 100 champions back in the time and place when the cocker majors were 15 dogs for three points. Right. And Tom O'Neill bred him, and he would always say his greatest claim to fame was he was his mother's son. And that Dream Ridge Domino really changed the whole breed. Mm -hmm. But it was really the mother. I mean, his mother was a phenomenal bitch. Right. And I think that that consistency, that line of strong bitches that's behind your best stud dogs, you know, when you can go back in a pedigree and it's boom, 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 not just that it's perfect quality or it's this or it's that, but the bitches are consistently producing and producing and producing and generally producing down from that. Well, yes, but that information is getting harder and harder and harder to ascertain because as it becomes less and less politically correct to breed, Mm. and I've heard, you know, this very weekend was at the first dog show I've been into in 10 months and something, oh, I haven't bred a litter and such and such, or I haven't done this and this. Well, then how do you know? What have you got? How are you moving that forward? You know, because if you're not going to use those dogs, you're not going to know what they're going to produce. It's just pretty invaluable information that a serious breeder would want to have. And as so often happens, and you and I are touching on this, I touched on this with Amanda, I touched on this with Shannon. So many of these things always are going to go back to the concept of mentors and having the wherewithal, the chutzpah, you know, to go to the old time breeders and ask questions and actually listen. Well, the one common thread that all those old breeders had is they bred their dogs. Yep. They didn't gain that by raising three litters every five years. That's not how you're going to really put your program together Mm -hmm. as far as that goes. But I think the big thing right now with just not wanting to keep male dogs and then the very limited number of stud dogs that are available in, in all the breeds is really a problem. It is. It's an across the board issue. And I've seen other people, you and I were talking about a young fellow out of Washington that has golden retrievers that brought this up a year ago. And the hard thing is trying to find that stud dog, looking for a stud dog, and there aren't any. So here's another one for you. I'm adding this to the list. So just roll with me here, man. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you park all these dogs and there's that big winning best in show dog, but we're all leery of popular sire and that big winning best in show dog has been bred to everything that walks and come to find out there's a brother that's sitting in somebody's backyard somewhere, never got shown. Maybe if you're lucky, it had a championship, but probably it just went to a pet home and never left the couch. So the idea of breeding more dogs less frequently and the argument, the balancing act between don't let anybody tell you that breeding to the big winner's brother is the same as breeding to the big winner. Like, so which side of this do you come down on? Look at the dogs because the ribbons don't come with it. Mm, yes. So, you know, I mean, if the brother has what your bitch needs, then that's your dog. Because we all realize that when it comes down to the point of Competing in your breed has a degree of fairness. 
there's a modicum of you're competing against your own. But the big, big winning dogs, that's promotion. That's campaign. Yep. That's money. And so I'm not saying that they aren't values. I'm just saying that the biggest value is probably what's being spent every month. Right. That doesn't necessarily translate to a top producing sire. It's just not. But there's a lot of truisms on this, that just having a ribbon does not make a great stud dog. We sent a bitch to Italy to be bred one time, and the litter came. I was grateful for all the trouble everybody went through to get the litter to happen. I mean, we were smuggling dogs. It was like, you know, (laughs) oh my God, this and that. And I was just, it was high drama. I mean, and from that reading, we didn't get a finishable puppy. So, I mean, you might have said, wow, that was a whole lot of for for nothing. But we kept it. There was a nice male. Eh, You know, he was a swing and a miss. (laughs) But he had a few really fantastic traits about him. And he, in turn, sired best in show winners. Right. He was a really wonderful stud dog. Right. Never even got him finished. Right. But it doesn't matter because when you're going in there, And when people are coming to look at your puppies or you're taking your puppy or that dog in the ring, what they see in front of them is really what's important. And the hype is nice. I mean, the hype is wonderful. I mean, the storyline, but the quality stands on its own. Right. There was a dog being shown this weekend and I asked Jane, I said, what do you think about that dog? And she's like, oh, I said, well, what do you think about it? And she's like, well, why do you want to know what I think about it? I said, well, we bought a puppy out of it. I said, I kind of wanted your opinion prior to knowing that. You know, what do you think? And she's like, no, I'd still buy the puppy out of them. So there you go. You want to be able to be happy with what you have. And I think sometimes we get caught up that if it's not a name brand, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not good. Right. Yes. You hit a really good analogy there with name brand. And I think that that is super important. Having a name brand sire does not necessarily stamp any kind of name brand quality on the puppies. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's how it comes together. Well, when you see other people showing up, when you see people that are maybe not the most deft professional handlers showing them and those puppies are still winning, you might actually have something. You know, that might be something to teach her about. Right. It would have to be a politically correct to say that even Mary can finish a dog (laughs) out of this. You know, I mean, we all know that, you know. Right. So that's something to brag on, you know? Well, and I think that that's valid. As breeders, one of the things that we should be thinking about is producing dogs of such quality that a marginally functional owner handler who's capable of presenting the dog can finish it on their own in any breed. That's where it's all at. Yep. When you can take them out of studio conditions and they can still win. Yep. Then that's true quality. That's you actually have something there. Yep. It's kind of fun, especially when you see a good entry there and, and they're all handed off. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, what do you have? Right. But I think that that's something that is a measure of quality. And like this year, especially, yeah, with not maybe as many dogs getting finished. Yeah. Who is our judge of quality? Are the people who are getting our puppies? You know, I mean, are we happy with our own dogs? Right. I've really kind of enjoyed maybe not going to as many shows, but kind of sitting back and looking, kind of relearn your own dogs. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this before, the unforced error, if you will, the pause button that nobody asked for that has been 2020. I feel like if we've taken away 
the ability to breed a litter, to reevaluate our dogs, to grow in some way in this space that was in many ways handed to us without our asking, then we have acquired something of value from this year. Now, have you been involved in breeds that have had stud additions? Because back in the dark ages, you know, when people were very open about doing stud service, every year we proudly advertised the dogs that we right. had at stud. Right. Sometimes even posting their fees right in there. Just right. throwing it up and saying, and that was something that happened pretty regularly, but that's kind of a thing of the past. My breed has had a stud dog issue over the years, off and on in the like the breed magazine. One of the things I like that they do is they offer club membership. One of the things that you can do is acquire a stud dog listing on the website. Oh, very nice. It is super nice. And it's divided up by state and whatever. And you can go in the stud dog listing and you can see what is it done? What's the pedigree like? What's the health testing? Da, da, da. So that for someone who's maybe newer to the breed and doesn't know everyone, like I know what's out there and what works for me and what doesn't, but not everybody does. And so to me, that's a pretty great resource that I would love it if more clubs would make available to their membership. I think it's fantastic. And I do think that people should be encouraged to offer their dogs at stud because they're probably doing more breed betterment than finishing their whole litter of dogs themselves. Right. Just as far as making points off of their own litter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Because (laughs) that is probably something that I guess at one point in time, that was the idea. People would go ahead and keep a dog back and they would say part of what that dog would generate stud fees that would probably, you know, so forth and so on, just kind of like, you know, keeping back their female, showing it and selling Mm -hmm. puppies and recouping expenses and that kind of a thing. Yeah, absolutely. But that's kind of not as done now to maybe the peril. To the detriment, definitely. I don't think there's a maybe there. I think to the detriment of the sport. It's just too easy to get wrapped up in, well, everybody's going to breed to dog X over there. So why am I bothering with this? And I don't know that that is the best solution for our breeds long term. How's that? Maybe sometime the little bit of the disconnect between the competitiveness of exhibition And the long-term betterment of the breed sometimes are not mutually exclusively the same thing. Yeah, I think that that is absolutely the case. And I think I have been up on my soapbox of late on the concept of collaboration and not competition. And while competition is good and it's useful and it keeps us sharp and it keeps us moving forward, I think we lose sight of some really important stuff when we get so wrapped around the axle of competition that we can't collaborate. Isn't it ironic that in the thoroughbreds and the quarter mm-hmm. horses that they're competing, mm-hmm. but there is so much more collaboration and yes. so much more involvement and everyone's, they want the going forward, not just maybe mutually exclusive to theirs. Yeah. That is something that I think we can all sort of aspire to as we move forward into out of the pandemic year and into something we hope will be A little more user-friendly next year, yeah? Absolutely so. And I think that that's probably, as breeders, we can kind of sit back and go, hmm, maybe this dog isn't even finished, but maybe it's still a valuable animal as far as has a contribution. Sure. It can finish next year. (laughs) 
It'll be okay. As we are showing one right now that is his teeth are hanging by a thread. <laughs> And probably we can put the entries on his AARP card. You know, I totally, you know, next year. Next year. We'll get to it next year. Next year. Oh, my God. But I think the interest in our dogs as a result of people, baby, being home and all that has probably never been higher. Absolutely has not been higher. I think the registration numbers and people's waiting lists and it's been cray cray. And I understand that. People get a little over it with me and my desire to find the silver lining. But, you know, it's not the end of the world to use our time wisely if it's forced upon us. How's that? (laughs) Well, that's totally the truth. And I think that probably people being home and being more family centric and so forth, Mm -hmm. they're like, hey, let's do a puppy together. You know, we can do that type of thing. And and I've been hearing that, you know, and I've been talking to my friends. Yeah, a lot of people come in to buy puppies. Well, I'm going to be working from home for the next year. So here's a good time to raise a puppy. And I mean, there's some legitimate flip sides to that. And I get it. Absolutely get it that what's going to happen when they have to go back to the office is the puppy going to be abandoned and that sort of a thing. Well, I mean, I think you could say that for children, it's like starting your family. Does that mean you have to plan on staying home for the next 18 years? You know, it's like... No, no, you're Probably you're going to multitask. Uh, that's right. You're going to make arrangements and you're going to figure it out. And that's just how we do. We can't be defeated by it. Yeah. But I do think that people should use the services of the ICG stuff and do a little bit more research in that and having those options there. Because mm-hmm. I know we're going to be doing some readings on some dogs that have been gone for a, a pretty good length of time now. And we're just now at the point where we can actually utilize them and I kind of wish we had a crack at some of the ones that were maybe even longer ago, but the prices now are so reasonable to do it. Right. And you know what? Frozen semen 20 years later, I mean, I can't tell you how many liters of clumber spaniels my mom had from 20, 25 year old frozen semen. It's very manageable these days. The science is good. We've got podcasts this month on this topic. So I definitely think that this is a, Stud Dog Month in November at Pure Dog Talk. So thank you. Thank you for joining us, Dale. My pleasure. It's always great to visit with you. Isn't November something about when you grow your beard? What's that month called for guys? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, not, I don't I'm know. not exactly certain. I just I know I knew the pumpkins were coming up. Okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you later, Dale. All right. You take care, Laura. Thanks a lot, babe. Bye-bye. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk. 